Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how did they go about exploring it further. Now on today's episode, we won't be going into the details of a specific job, but instead I'll be sharing some excerpts from an article called How Will You Measure Your Life, written by Clayton M. Christensen. And Clay Christensen, for those of you who are not familiar, he is a professor at Harvard Business School, a very well-known professor at HBS, and he's also the author of the book The Innovator's Dilemma. And he's very well known in the industry for his ideas on how disruption works, and how innovation works. Now, this particular article is based on an address that was given by Clay Christensen to his students at Howard Business School at the end of his class, where students asked him how could they apply the strategies that he had taught them to their personal lives and to their lives overall, which would help them lead more meaningful lives. And some of the ideas that he shared, you might think, are pretty straightforward and obvious, but there are a bunch of nuggets in here which I think you will find interesting and helpful to keep in mind as you go on with your life. So I hope you enjoy these excerpts. And of course, you can um, check out the article yourself. Just Google Clay Christensen, How Will You Measure Your Life? This article was first published in Howard Business Review some time back. So here's how the article goes. Before I published The Innovator's Dilemma, I got a call from Andrew Grove, then the chairman of Intel. He had read one of my early papers about disruptive technology, and he asked if I could talk to his direct reports and explain my research and what it implied for Intel. Excited, I flew to Silicon Valley and showed up at the appointed time, only to have Grove say, look, stuff has happened, we have only 10 minutes for you. Tell us what your model of disruption means for Intel. I said that I couldn't, that I needed a full 30 minutes to explain the model because only with it as context would any comments about Intel make sense. 10 minutes into my explanation, Grove interrupted. Look, I've got your model. Just tell us what it means for Intel. I insisted that I needed 10 more minutes to describe how the process of disruption had worked its way through a very different industry, steel, so that he and his team could understand how disruption worked. I told the story of Nucor and other steel mini-mills had begun by attacking the lowest end of the market and later moved up toward the higher end, undercutting the traditional steel mills. When I finished the mini-mill story, Grove said, Okay, I get it. What it means for Intel is... And he went on to articulate what would become the company's strategy for going to the bottom of the market to launch the Celeron processor. I've thought about that a million times since. If I had been suckered into telling Andy Grove what he should think about the microprocessor business, I'd have been killed. But instead of telling him what to think, I taught him how to think. And then he reached what I felt was the correct decision on his own. That experience had a profound influence on me. When people ask what I think they should do, I rarely answer their question directly. 
Instead, I run the question aloud through one of my models. I'll describe how the process in the model worked its way through an industry quite different from their own. And then, more often than not, they'll say, okay, I get it. And they'll answer their own question more insightfully than I could have. My class at HBS is structured to help my students understand what good management theory is and how it is built. On the last day of class, I asked my students to turn those theoretical lenses on themselves to find cogent answers to three questions. First, how can I be sure that I'll be happy in my career? Second, how can I be sure that my relationships with my spouse and my family become an enduring source of happiness? Third, how can I be sure I'll stay out of jail? Though the last question sounds lighthearted, it's not. Two of the 32 people in my Rhodes Scholar class spent time in jail. Jeff Skilling of Enron fame was a classmate of mine at HBS. These were good guys, but something in their lives sent them off in the wrong direction. He then goes on to say, One of the theories that gives great insight on the first question, how to be sure we find happiness in our careers, is from Frederick Herzberg, who asserts that the powerful motivator in our lives isn't money, it's the opportunity to learn, grow in responsibilities, contribute to others, and be recognized for achievements. I tell the students about a vision of sorts I had while I was running the company I founded before becoming an academic. In my mind's eye, I saw one of my managers leave for work one morning with a relatively strong level of self-esteem. Then I pictured her driving home to her family 10 hours later, feeling unappreciated, frustrated, underutilized and demeaned. I imagined how profoundly her lowered self-esteem affected the way she interacted with her children. The vision in my mind then fast-forwarded to another day when she drove home with greater self-esteem, feeling that she had learned a lot, been recognized for achieving valuable things and played a significant role in the success of some important initiatives. I then imagined how positively that affected her as a spouse and a parent. My conclusion, management is a noble profession if it's practiced well. No other occupation offers as many ways to help others learn and grow, take responsibility and be recognized for achievement. A lot of MBA students think that a career in business means buying, selling and investing in companies. That's unfortunate. Doing deals doesn't yield the deep rewards that come from building up people. And so here he's talking about the importance of building up people in your life, whether that's in your personal life or in your professional life, but investing in people and helping them grow will have far-reaching consequences that are not immediately apparent to you. Like the example that he gave of someone who feels good at work and that translates into how she feels when she's back at home and is interacting with her family. Clay then talks about how it's important to create a strategy for your life. And here's what he says. A theory that is helpful in answering the second question, how can I ensure that my relationship with my family proves to be an enduring source of happiness, concerns how strategy is defined and implemented. 
Its primary insight is that a company's strategy is determined by the types of initiatives that management invests in. If a company's resource allocation process is not managed masterfully, what emerges from it can be very different from what management intended. Because companies' decision-making systems are designed to steer investments to initiatives that offer the most tangible and immediate returns, companies shortchange investments in initiatives that are crucial to their long-term strategies. Over the years, I've watched the fates of my HPS classmates from 1979 unfold. I've seen more and more of them come to reunions unhappy, divorced, and alienated from their children. I can guarantee you that not a single one of them graduated with the deliberate strategy of getting divorced and raising children who would become estranged from them. And yet, a shocking number of them implemented that strategy. The reason? They didn't keep the purpose of their lives front and center as they decided how to spend their time, talents, and energy. It's quite startling that a significant fraction of the 900 students that HPS draws each year from the world's best have given little thought to the purpose of their lives. I tell the students that HPS might be one of their last chances to reflect deeply on that question. If they think that they'll have more time and energy to reflect later, they're nuts because life only gets more demanding. You take on a mortgage, you're working 70 hours a week, you have a spouse and children. For me, having a clear purpose in my life has been essential. But it was something that I had to think long and hard about before I understood it. When I was a Rhodes Scholar, I was in a very demanding academic program, trying to cram an extra year's worth of work into my time at Oxford. I decided to spend an hour every night reading, thinking and praying about why God put me on this earth. That was a very challenging commitment to keep, because every hour I spent doing that, I wasn't studying applied econometrics. I was conflicted about whether I could really afford to take that time away from my studies, but I stuck with it, and ultimately figured out the purpose of my life. Had I instead spent that hour each day learning the latest techniques for mastering the problems of autocorrelation in regression analysis, I would have badly misspent my life. I apply the tools of econometrics a few times a year, but I apply my knowledge of the purpose of my life every day. It's the single most useful thing I've ever learned. I've promised my students that if they take the time to figure out their life's purpose, they'll look back on it as the most important thing they discovered at HBS. If they don't figure it out, they will just sail off without a rudder and get buffeted in the very rough seas of life. Clarity about their purpose will trump knowledge of activity-based costing, balanced scorecards, core competence, disruptive innovation, the four Ps and the five forces. My purpose grew out of my religious faith. But faith isn't the only thing that gives people direction. For example, one of my former students decided that his purpose was to bring honesty and economic prosperity to his country and to raise children who were as capably committed to this cause and to each other as he was. His purpose is focused on family and others, as mine is. 
the choice and successful pursuit of a profession is but one tool for achieving your purpose. But without a purpose, life can become hollow. In the next section of his address, Clay talks about the importance of allocating your resources. And here's what he says. Your decisions about allocating your personal time, energy, and talent ultimately shape your life's strategy. I have a bunch of businesses, so to say, that compete for these resources. I'm trying to have a rewarding relationship with my wife, raise great kids, contribute to my community, succeed in my career, contribute to my church, and so on. And I have exactly the same problem that a corporation does. I have a limited amount of time and energy and talent. How much do I devote to each of these pursuits? Allocation choices can make your life turn out to be very different from what you intended. Sometimes that's good. Opportunities that you never planned for emerge. But if you misinvest your resources, the outcome can be bad. As I think about my former classmates who inadvertently invested for lives of hollow unhappiness, I can't help believing that their troubles relate right back to a short-term perspective. When people who have a high need for achievement have an extra half hour of time or an extra ounce of energy, they'll unconsciously allocate it to activities that yield the most tangible accomplishments. And our careers provide the most concrete evidence that we are moving forward. You ship a product, finish a design, complete a presentation, close a sale, teach a class, publish a paper, get paid, get promoted. In contrast, investing time and energy in your relationship with your spouse and children typically doesn't offer that same immediate sense of achievement. Kids misbehave every day. It's really not until 20 years down the road that you can put your hands on your hips and say, I raised a good son or a good daughter. You can neglect your relationship with your spouse and on a day-to-day basis, it doesn't seem as if things are deteriorating. People who are driven to excel have this unconscious propensity to underinvest in their families and overinvest in their careers. Even though intimate and loving relationships with their families are the most powerful and enduring source of happiness. If you study the root causes of business disasters, over and over you'll find this predisposition towards endeavors that offer immediate gratification. If you look at personal lives through that lens, you'll see the same stunning, sobering pattern. People allocating fewer and fewer resources to the things that they would have once said mattered most. The next section that I'd like to talk about from his address is what he calls avoiding the marginal costs mistake. And here's how he describes it. We are taught in finance and economics that in evaluating alternative investments, we should ignore sunk and fixed costs and instead base decisions on the marginal costs and marginal revenues that each alternative entails. We learn in our course that this doctrine biases companies to leverage what they have put in place to succeed in the past instead of guiding them to create the capabilities they'll need in the future. If we knew the future would be exactly the same as the past, that approach would be fine. But if the future is different, and it almost always is, then it's the wrong thing to do. 
this theory addresses the third question that I discuss with my students. How to live a life of integrity. That is, you stay out of jail. Unconsciously, we often employ the marginal cost doctrine in our personal lives when we choose between right and wrong. A voice in our head says, Look, I know that as a general rule, most people shouldn't do this. But in this particular extenuating circumstance, just this once, it's okay. The marginal cost of doing something wrong just this once always seems alluringly low. It suckers you in and you don't ever look at where that path ultimately is headed and at the full costs that the choice entails. Justification for infidelity and dishonesty in all their manifestations lies in the marginal cost economics of just this once. I'd like to share a story about how I came to understand the potential damage of just this once in my own life. I played on the Oxford University varsity basketball team. We worked our tails off and finished the season undefeated. The guys on the team were the best friends I've had in my life. We got to the British equivalent of the NCAA tournament and made it to the final tour. It turned out that the championship game was scheduled to be played on a Sunday. I had made a personal commitment to God at age 16 that I would never play ball on Sunday. So I went to the coach and explained my problem. He was incredulous. My teammates were incredulous too because I was the starting center. Every one of the guys on the team came to me and said, you've got to play. Can't you break the rule just this one time? I'm a deeply religious man, so I went away and prayed about what I should do. I got a very clear feeling that I shouldn't break my commitment, so I didn't play in the championship game. In many ways, that was a small decision, involving one of the several thousand Sundays in my life. In theory, surely I could have crossed over the line just that one time and then not done it again. But looking back on it, resisting the temptation whose logic was in this extenuating circumstance, just this once, it's okay, has proven to be one of the most important decisions of my life. Why? My life has been one unending stream of extenuating circumstances. Had I crossed the line that one time, I would have done it over and over in the years that followed. The lesson I learned from this is that it's easier to hold on to your principles 100% of the time than it is to hold on to them 98% of the time. If you give in to just this once, based on a marginal cost analysis, as some of my former classmates have done, you'll regret where you end up. You've got to define for yourself what you stand for and draw the line in a safe place. And then the last section that I'd like to talk about from his address is what he calls choosing the right yardstick. And here's what he says. This past year, I was diagnosed with cancer and faced the possibility that my life would end sooner than I'd planned. Thankfully, it now looks as if I'll be spared, but the experience has given me important insight into my life. I have a pretty clear idea of how my ideas have generated enormous revenue for companies that have used my research. I know I've had a substantial impact. But as I've confronted this disease, it's been interesting to see 
how unimportant that impact is to me now. I've concluded that the metric by which God will assess my life isn't dollars, but the individual people whose lives I've touched. I think that's the way it will work for us all. Don't worry about the level of individual prominence you have achieved. Worry about the individuals you have helped become better people. This is my final recommendation. Think about the metric by which your life will be judged and make a resolution to live every day so that in the end, your life will be judged a success. So that's where I'll end this episode. And like I said, you can look for this entire article by yourself. Just simply search for Clay Christensen, How Will You Measure Your Life? This article was first published in Harvard Business Review uh, a couple of years back. Uh, But the reason I found this article interesting and something worth thinking about is because he talks about how will you measure your life? What metrics are important to you that you think you would want to have done well on when you're nearing the end of your life? And I haven't done this exercise myself, but to me, it seemed like a very worthwhile exercise to do to think about what is that yardstick that you would want to use to measure your life with. So I leave you with that thought. I hope you found this episode helpful. Um, we have some more interesting episodes lined up for you in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for those. And until then, bye-bye. All right, I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Just before you leave, do remember to sign up for our newsletter on our website, learneducatediscover.com, where we share updates on new episodes, a lot of career-oriented resources, and a lot of other inspiring stories and videos and podcasts that we find online. So do check it out at learneducatediscover.com. You'll also find the library of all the other podcasts that we've done in the past on the website. Of course, if you have any questions at all, or if you just want to say hello, you can always email us just drop us a mail at hello at learneducatediscover.com or tweet at us at LED underscore curator. That's LED underscore C-U-R-A-T-O-R. Of course, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learneducatediscover or you can also subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and for your time. And until the next one, Bye-bye.